You're listening to the Living Presence Podcast, exploring faith, meeting the world, from East Gwillenbury, Ontario. Hello and welcome to episode four of the Living Presence Podcast for February 18th. My name is Brianne Swan, and I am the Community Minister with the Living Presence Ministry, a community ministry of the United Church of Canada in East Gwillimbury. And also, welcome to Lent, a period of six weeks where we inch towards Jesus' death at the hands of the Roman Empire. It sounds really dark, But I've always appreciated Lent as a time to reflect and take stock of the ways in my own life that I can recommit to being better. What relationships should I place more effort into nurturing? Or what can I let go that doesn't bring meaning or fulfillment? What attitudes do I hold that are at best limiting and at worst harmful and poisonous? It is the tradition and practice of many Christians to give up something over Lent. And a mentor of mine suggested that perhaps, for this year, I consider giving up expectations. Expectations of myself, expectations of others. What would that look like? I still don't know because we're in the early days, but I am trying and am ever a work in progress. It has been an interesting exercise in catching myself in a state of expectation, which is mostly occurring after the fact, but baby steps, baby steps. On this week's show, we'll be hearing the conclusion of a very old and very loved story, God's covenant with Noah after the flood. I'll be reflecting on the power of changing and softening hearts, God's my own, and a media personality who was at one point a major fixture in my childhood home. And as the first in a series of readings for Lent, we'll be hearing once again the words of Khalil Gibran and a passage from his book, A Tear and a Smile. Our music this week features a song by New York City artist Jake Tavill, as well as a piece by Montreal singer-songwriter Ainsley McNeeny. I've had the pleasure of sharing a stage with Ainsley a couple of times, and her songs have become a favorite for both me and my children. Ainsley's music seems especially perfect for Lent, as it is reflective and dark, but without plunging into despair. Over the next six weeks, we'll be hearing a different song from Ainsley, and I both invite and encourage you to go to our show notes on the Living Presence Ministry website, where you will find links where you can purchase music from all of the musicians we feature on the show. To kick things off, this is Underground by Ainsley McNeeny from her 2014 release, Bones Are Forever.
My name is Jason, and I'm walking on the Oak Ridges Moraine Trail, just east of Aurora, Ontario. It's a cloudy day. There's a gentle breeze coming through the pines, and there are birds doing bird things and squirrels doing squirrel things. And I'm reading from Genesis, chapter 9, verses 8 to 17. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, as for me, I am establishing my covenant with you and your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the domestic animals, and every animal of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of a flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the clouds, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all the flesh that is on the earth. That was Jason reading amongst the squirrels and the birds from the Oak Ridges Moraine. So we're shifting a bit this week in terms of which narrative we're following. Up until now on this show, we've been hearing stories from what some theological schools now refer to as the Christian scriptures, but has traditionally been known as the New Testament. Basically, these are the scriptures that start at the point when Jesus enters the picture. The other set of scriptures that are part of the Christian Bible are the Hebrew scriptures, or the Jewish scriptures, also called the Old Testament. And this is where today's reading comes from. It is an old, old myth based upon other old, old myths coming out of Mesopotamia. And this particular flood story was completed in its current form approximately five and a half centuries before the birth of Christ. Part of the issue with our reading this episode is that it's only giving the final passage of a much, much longer story. So I'm going to try and give you a brief synopsis. Humanity had gone bad. Like, really bad. Angels are making babies with human women who are giving birth to giants. The Book of Enoch, which is a non-canonical Jewish religious work, talks about people sinning with birds, reptiles, fish, and other animals. You can go ahead and read between the lines here. God was angry and disappointed with God's creation. 
So they decided, screw it. I'm tossing the whole thing and starting over. So God finds Noah, whom the Bible describes as being righteous in his generation. But given the state of things, this might not actually be much of a compliment. God tells Noah he's going to flood the whole earth. Noah is to gather his wife, his sons, and their wives and start building a giant boat. Noah and his party are also supposed to gather two of every animal. People come and laugh at Noah for building such a boat, but Noah gets the last laugh in the end because soon the rains come. And they come and they come. For 40 days it rains. And after the rain stops, Noah sends out a dove, which eventually returns with an olive branch. He sends the dove out a final time and it does not come back. God eventually tells everybody to come out of the ark. Noah kills a couple of animals as a sacrifice, which seems completely counterproductive, but whatever. And then God proclaims a covenant that never again will God cause a giant flood to kill all the people and animals. And that every time a rainbow is seen in the sky, we can remember God's covenant with us. The flood and the decimation of fleshly creation was an incredibly violent act. And I like to think, I like to think that this covenant is God changing God's mind. That perhaps God eventually came to the conclusion that killing everything and everybody just caused them way too much sorrow and heartbreak. And that God's own heart was softened enough to consider that there must be another way. As a bit of an aside, describing this story as myth is not synonymous with untrue, because this story has many truths. But for something to be true, it does not necessarily follow that there needs to be the possibility of an eyewitness account, and that it factually, historically happened. We can take this story seriously without taking it literally. So this myth was eventually taken up by Christians, and it is because of this story that for many generations the rainbow has been a symbol of covenant and promise. Specifically, God's promise to care for and look after all of us, and never again be so friggin' angry that they decide to kill everybody and everything without discretion. To never again choose this level of violence against their people. And it is also why, especially growing up in the 80s and 90s, that churches had rainbows plastered all over the place. The United Church was all about the rainbows. And it still is, in most places, all about the rainbows, but for different reasons, which I will describe later on. The rainbows symbolized covenant and promise. My very favorite picture of myself as a child which I will absolutely post in the show notes, was taken when I was three years old in 1986. I was at some sort of fair with my aunt and my mother, and my aunt took me to get my face painted. In the photo, I'm sitting beside her with a dove painted on my forehead and two rainbows, one on each cheek. I was too young to remember this day, 
but apparently I refused to wash my face before going to bed because I wanted to keep these rainbows forever. Like many folks my age, rainbows were a key feature of our Sunday school experience. Now, a mostly unrelated fixture of my life growing up was the eerie landscape of conservative talk radio. And I can honestly say I never in my life thought that I would be speaking about these two very different experiences in the same reflection. But here I am. My father always had Talk 640 and CFRB playing as he was driving. And there are a couple of people I felt like I practically knew from listening to them or their voices so much. One of these was Bill Carroll, which made it especially trippy when I was actually part of a show with him on CFRB last year. And the other was Michael Corrin. Now, for those of you who might not know who Michael Corrin is, he was arguably one of the most recognized commentators, speakers, and columnists within Catholic and conservative media in Canada. My father listened to Michael Corrin on the radio, but he also watched his show every single night on CTS. It's worth noting that my father is not a Christian, nor does he claim to have any spiritual identity whatsoever. But Michael Corrin said all the things Dad felt about the world, minus the God part. He also represented social conservatives in Canadian media, and those are my father's people. I always felt like Mr. Corrin was more dangerous than people like Cesar Levant, because he was so well-spoken, and as far as I can remember, never personally attacked anybody. So he was harder to dismiss. And it was difficult for me to reconcile watching this guy, who seemed like he'd be perfectly lovely in person, with the things he was saying, because they were just so hurtful, and directed at people I knew and whom I loved. One of Michael Corrin's positions that I disagreed with most vehemently, and believe me, I've watched a lot of Michael Corrin, so I have a lot of material to work with, but the position I disagreed with most vehemently was his stance on equal marriage. Mr. Corrin was a member of the Catholic Church and towed his denomination's party line when it came to LGBTQ justice issues. But again, he never called anybody names. He was mostly polite yet very firm, but by his own account he emboldened those who were perhaps not as restrained to be more overt with their hatred. He wrote about it, he spoke about it, and people took his words and ran with them. But after moving out of my family home when I was 18, I had a lot more control over whose voice I listened to on the radio. And I was too poor for a television, so that took care of that. But even if I had a television, I wouldn't have been watching Michael Corrin. So every so often he'd pop up in the news and I would shake my head a bit, and then I'd forget about him again. Until recently, when I saw a newspaper headline that said Michael Corrin had, well, he changed his mind. So what happened? 
Well, this is his explanation in his own words. I'm a person of faith. I'm a Christian. And I was increasingly uncomfortable with claiming to follow a man who was the personification of love, justice, and forgiveness. Tolerant, including, not excluding, never judging. Reconciling that with a stance I had, which was pretty judgmental. And I don't think that I was close to a breakdown, but I wasn't comfortable in my own skin. And it got to the point where I knew I had to make a decision. There is much more to Mr. Corrin's story of changing his mind, which he details in his book called Epiphany. And I suspect there are still many different issues that we will continue to disagree on. But after so many years of feeling hurt and frustrated and even angry at so much of what this man had to say, I actually found myself standing in my kitchen this week and moaning to my husband, Oh my goodness, I can't believe I'm developing a soft spot for Michael Corrin. My heart was softened to this man and his journey. And because he was the voice of so much of the attitudes I internalized and experienced as harmful while growing up, Mr. Corrin's change of heart and my resulting change of heart has been a powerful and moving experience. So then I find myself coming back to the rainbow. A rainbow of covenant and promise and now also a symbol of affirmation for those who identify as being LGBTQ. It's interesting to me that the origins of the pride flag have nothing to do with God's promise to Noah. It was created separately by an individual artist, with each colored stripe representing a different aspect of human experience. And yet here we are. A rainbow of covenant a rainbow of affirmation. And then I find myself hoping that responsibility can be added into the mix. When God spoke to Noah and his family, promising to all of creation that never again would God send a flood to destroy everything, I'd like to think that covenant was a two-way exchange. And perhaps, on behalf of humanity, Noah's responsibility was to, well, try harder. To try harder to live good and decent lives. To live with respect in creation. To love and serve others. This seems like a really good theme as we ease into the Lenten season. In the Christian narrative, God ultimately decides to enter into humanity with us through Jesus. After we continued to blunder, perhaps God realized we were the kind of learners for whom simply telling us how to live wasn't enough, that laws and rules weren't cutting it. We needed to be shown. We needed to be shown by somebody in whom we could see ourselves and see our own potential. For his part, Michael Korn has taken it upon himself to reach out to gay rights groups and apologize, to take responsibility, to sit down with individuals and say, I am sorry that my words have hurt you. I am sorry that I have hurt you. 
I've been told that for those who are part of the 12-step community, step nine, which is apologizing and making amends to the people you have harmed, is often the most difficult. I have found my heart even more softened after watching Michael Corrin being so open and unreserved about his coming to terms with the words he has said and the people he has affected. And with all of this deeply embedded into my mind and moving my heart and seeing how Mr. Corrin has taken responsibility to educate and make amends, I feel like I have my own responsibility now to examine my relationships to the people with whom I do not agree and consistently find myself at odds. Often people I was closest to in my formative years. To work more towards dialogue than simply dismissal, because if Mr. Korn can do it, maybe I can step down from my soapbox for a while and do it too. God had a change of heart, Michael Corrin had a change of heart, and even I had a change of heart because once again, here I am talking about Michael Corrin in a way I never imagined in a million years I would be. So I want to leave the last words of this reflection with him, because as we move ever closer towards Jerusalem, where we will hear about everybody from the disciples to the religious leaders to the government and to the crowds getting it so very wrong. It's nice to be reminded that there is always a road home. My interest as a Christian, says Michael Corrin, and particularly one who got things wrong for so long, is always going to be truth, love, compassion, and justice. May it be so. Our second song this week is from New York City artist Jake Teville. You can find him online at www.jaketeville.com. This is his single, Noah's Ark.
I would not exchange the sorrows of my heart for the joys of the multitude. And I would not have the tears that sadness makes to flow from my every part turn into laughter. I would that my life remain a tear and a smile, a tear to purify my heart and give me understanding of life's secrets and hidden things, a smile to draw me nigh to the sons of my kind and to be a symbol of my glorification of the gods, a tear to unite me with those of broken heart, a smile to be a sign of my joy in existence. And I would rather that I died in yearning and longing than that I live weary and despairing. I want the hunger for love and beauty to be in the depths of my spirit, for I have seen those who are satisfied the most wretched of people, and I have heard the sigh of those in yearning and longing, and it is sweeter than the sweetest melody. With evening's coming, the flower folds her petals and sleeps, embracing her longing. At morning's approach, she opens her lips to meet the sun's kiss. The life of a flower is longing and fulfillment, a tear and a smile. The waters of the sea become vapor and rise and come together and area cloud. And the cloud floats above the hills and valleys until it meets the gentle breeze, then falls weeping to the fields and joins with brooks and rivers to return to the sea, its home. The life of clouds is a parting and a meeting, a tear and a smile. And so does the spirit become separated from the greater spirit to move in the world of matter and pass as a cloud over the mountain of sorrow and the plains of joy to meet the breeze of death and return whence it came to the ocean of love and beauty, to God. Each episode, the Living Presence Podcast offers an opportunity for listeners to contribute to our Love for the World segment, where the worldwide community can lift up the people and places in need of alliance, awareness, and hope. Let us know who and where is on your mind this week. You can record your shout-out with your smartphone and email it to hi at livingpresenceministry.org. Or you can leave a voicemail at area code 289 903 0019. Your responses will be added to the show, and we are grateful for your contribution. Since Wednesday afternoon, I've had many people message me, 
to ask that the family and friends of the victims of the Parkland, Florida shooting be kept in our prayers. Every time this happens in a school, I am reminded of the very first shooting that I was ever aware of. I was in the 11th grade and studying in Germany when the Columbine shooting happened in Colorado. I remember thinking, how is that even possible? How did these kids get these weapons? But the shootings keep happening, and we keep hearing calls to action, calls to action that never seem to materialize. Except, for some reason, this time, I'm actually feeling a little bit more hopeful. The surviving students are standing up and speaking out and saying, this is not okay, and we are demanding some change. It's still early, and perhaps this is just a blip, but I've been so inspired by the determination of these students not to let those who hold influence forget this moment. So in addition to those who were killed and those who were injured, I'd like to ask that we lift up and keep in our minds and our hearts the kids who are trying to make the grown-ups in power take notice and take action. It's worth a shot. And I hope this time they are successful. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. We'll be back next week and back with our buddy Mark as we hear about a heated exchange between Jesus and his right-hand man Peter. I'll be exercising my virtually non-existent understanding of ancient Greek and reflecting on scandal and the countercultural values that Jesus presents to his friends. And all of this in the context of some Gordon Lightfoot music, because I'll be preparing a Lightfoot service for the next week, and honestly, can you ever really have too much Gordon Lightfoot? Much love to you all, and we will see you next week. This podcast is brought to you by the Living Presence Ministry, a community ministry of the United Church of Canada. You can find us online at www.livingpresenceministry.org.